0: with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Welcome, dear listener, to Fear from the Heartland. I'm your host, Paul J. McSorley. Set aside some moments now and take an adventurous ride on a journey into the psyche of some talented writers. They will dig into your being and titillate you. Oh, I love that word, titillate. While the stories may not all take place in the heartland, I am delivering them to you from the heartland. My intention is to strike fear and confusion into the mind, soul, and yes, the heart. This is... Fear from the Heartland. Hello, Heartlanders, and welcome to Season 5, Episode 2 of Fear from the Heartland. I'm your host, Paul J. McSorley. Hey, Heartlanders, you guys patrons yet? Visit simplyscarypodcast.com and click Patrons in the upper menu to join the club. You'll get ad-free versions of this and all our other podcasts, including hundreds of standalone releases from our audio archives dating back to 2012. It's a great way to show your support, and you get a whole lot for it. He don't lie, he don't lie, he don't lie. Po oh, shit, is this thing on? Roughly two years ago, I was at a writer's conference in Springfield, Missouri, and I met a very talented writer by the name of Xavier Poe Kane. We struck up a conversation, and he asked if it would be alright for him to submit a story for Fear from the Heartland. Not only did I tell him yes, but I was blown away at his prose prowess. Tonight, three stories are brought to you by His Talented Mind, Each story is a standalone, however, they do intertwine and mesh with each other. These three stories and nine others will be featured on an audiobook soon to be released on Audible and produced by Chilling Tales for Dark Nights. The twelve tales are again all standalone, but delivered in such a way they tell one complete larger story. I'll be sure to let you know and I hope you will help out a talented rising author and grab a copy. So enough about this. Let's get after it. Tonight, we bring you a trio of tales from Xavier Poe Cain, a trifecta, if you will. In past Is prologue, two souls find each other in ancient Rome, only to be torn apart by the cruelest monster of them all, Mother Nature. Next, an angry god, we meet the son of a preacher man, the only boy who could ever teach a divided nation to heal, but at what cost? Finally, the conversation ties it all together in a story inspired by Edgar Allan Poe. And now, for your indulgence, past his prologue, An Angry God, The Conversation, by Xavier Poe Kane. Past is prologue It's beautiful Marcus Vespasianus said as he held the delicate ruby ring to the light He admired the way it glistened in the sunlight She loves red I could carve a nice peacock into the stone if you want sir the jeweler offered No I think she'd prefer it the way it is She must be special New wife? Marcus only nodded as the glimmer of an emerald ring caught his eye next. Green had always been his favorite color. As he held the two rings next to one another, he imagined them on Rufina's slender finger. It was fashionable for the women of his station to wear two rings on each finger, with the exception of the middle finger. This would be the start of his second wife's jewelry collection. Second wife. A smile lit up his face. Once the divorce from Lavilla was settled, he would be free. With this separation from his shrew of a wife, he could take the last step toward his happiness. He had shunned politics and went his own way in building his fortune. Then on a visit to the slave market, he came across a dark-haired beauty from Judea. Her eyes drew him in. There was a strength in them, a sense of nobility above her station. His social climbing wife had her mysteries. So why could he not have his? He purchased the girl and brought her into their home. His wife barely noticed her. Meanwhile, she had taken possession of Marcus's heart. More than that, the passion she stoked in him freed him from the constraints of Roman social and political expectations. He was no longer his family's puppet and the vehicle of his wife's ambition. He had found his authentic self. When his wife told him her father was exploring a better match for her, He barely contained his joy. Once she moved back in with her father, he decided it was time to take his true love on a holiday and declare his intent to build a life with her. As partner, instead of property. Rufina stood watching the waves of the Tyrrhenian Sea crash against Herculaneum's beaches. The sea breeze ruffled her tunic as she waited her master's return. The kitchen of the inn was preparing the midday meal for the guests. The smell of fresh seafood cooking over an open flame made her stomach grumble, but Marcus had told her to wait while he fetched lunch. She closed her eyes and thought of Joppa, her home in Judea. Her thoughts were less than nostalgic, her father haggling among the patriarchs of two families over her bride price and listening to the men discuss her status as a virgin. Such talk was what prepared her for the Roman slave stand after she had been taken as a spoil of war when Rome crushed the Jewish revolt there she had been displayed naked, but the tablet with her personal information saved her much of the ignominy she had felt listening to men debate her sexual value in her own home. That her father had played a central role in the debates had been far more humiliating than the ogling of strange men in a foreign land. It was there that she first saw her master's eyes. They were steel blue and full of laughter. He bantered with the slave dealer as she dared to steal glances at him. He was attractive, which was more than could be said of the entitled boys whose families her father had been negotiating with. The sound of him entering ended her idle thoughts and brought a smile to her lips. The scents from the kitchen smelled incredible, but it was here, away from the other slaves, his family, and especially his wife, that they could share a decent meal without gossip or scandal. Don't turn around, he ordered. Close your eyes. She obeyed and felt him step behind her her heart raced as she anticipated his hands removing her tunic. Instead, cold metal was pressed into her hand. I must admit, I lied about getting lunch. I wanted to get something else. Look at them, he whispered as he began nibbling her ear. His hands freely slid around her hips, slowly exploring her body. Rufina opened her eyes and looked at the two rings she held in her hand, one with a red gemstone and the other blue-green. The rumbling of her stomach was forgotten at the sudden surprise. He took them from her and slipped them on her left index finger. Thank you, she said softly. The gift, she was sure, signaled she was more than a common slave. His hand slipped between her legs, his fingers rubbing along her slit and finding the hooded bundle of nerves once wet. He softly began to swirl the pad of one finger, teasing her clit from hiding. She squirmed as he built her arousal. No other master had cared about her pleasure. Marcus was different. He seemed to gain more pleasure out of the fuck when she responded to what he was doing to her. Some days, he would take her to the edge before pushing her on her back and taking her. Other times, he would let her come and then slowly make love to her. She shuddered and let out a cry as he brought her to orgasm. He then swept her off her feet And carried her inside the inn to bed. He laid her down gently, and she spread her legs for him as he found his way between them. She reached for his cock and guided it inside before draping her arms around his neck. Rufina cherished these private moments when he was gentle with her. Despite the extravagant gift he had given her, she fought the urge to truly get her hopes up that there was something real developing between them. Then again, there was a reason Marcus brought her and not his wife to Herculaneum. Those thoughts were chased from her mind as he pressed his lips to her neck, softly sucking as he wrapped his arms around her and pulled her bare chest into his. Everything he was doing hit her just right as his lips moved closer to her ear. Mine, he growled. Yes, master, she groaned. I won't be your master much longer. His voice was husky. Her heart sank. She knew he must have felt her body stiffen and unconsciously pull away, their moment of pleasure lost. Her mind was instantaneously a storm of confusion. Why would he present her with presents befitting a freeborn lover only to inform her of her pending gifting or sale to another master? Have I displeased you, master? No. No his lips tongued at the spot right below her ear that never failed to arouse her. I just received word from La Villa; Her father has arranged a better husband for her in Rome. They are petitioning for divorce. Once everything is settled, you will be freed, and then I want you as my wife. He slowly continued taking her and returned to gently biting her ear. She went still as his words turned inside her mind. Or perhaps I won't for you if you don't want to be my wife. His tone was as playful as his words were ominous. Rufina's eyes moved to his. Do you speak the truth? This isn't some cruel amusement? Her heart pounded as he slowed to a stop, still buried inside her. No, I love you. My marriage to Lavilla was for wealth and power. There was no affection in that shrew's heart. I'm also done with the corruption of Rome. I've found a cottage here, at the base of Vesuvius, where we'll live a simple kind of life. She saw the truth of his words in his eyes and once again wrapped her arms around his neck. I love you too, master. She kissed him. He broke the kiss. Marcus. Call me Marcus, Rufina. Yes, Marcus. The name fell good on her lips as she kissed him as he found his rhythm, taking her now as his betrothed. Soon the couple began building together, the bed shaking as he finished inside her, and her body responded with a second orgasm. Even as he slowed and they came down from bliss, the bed continued to shake. Rufina laughed as Marcus relaxed on top of her. I think we woke Vesuvius, she quipped. He laughed rolled off her and pulled her to him. Just another earthquake. It's normal here. Something we'll have to get used to. She ran her left hand over his chest, the sun glinting off the gemstones. She was particularly fond of the ruby one. I can't wait to see the spot you picked out, she said as her stomach impatiently resumed its rumbling. Perhaps tomorrow I'll take you there, but for now, I think we need to eat. She followed Marcus out of the bed and stopped to pick her tunic up from the floor. No, he said. I have something else for you. He handed her a bundle, a linen stola and pala. The dyed cloth, pink for the stola and orange for the pala, took Rufina's breath away. But I'm still a slave. Marcus grinned no one in herculaneum knows you're not my wife so why not get used to it hurry i'm starting to get hungry too deep beneath herculaneum vesuvius was stirring unaware of and unconcerned with the humans and other animals living in his shadow uncomfortably hot he began to spew a mix of ash and pumice into the air but this was not enough to relieve the pressure the couple moved through the streets, no one the wiser it was master and slave and not husband and wife. Street vendors hawked gaudy trinkets brought from around the Mediterranean. Marcus bought two gold bracelets that had caught her eye. An early dowry, he teased jovially. After finishing their midday meal, they were ready to return to their room at the inn to revel in each other's lust and make love again. What? Strange clouds, Rufina said as she pointed to Vesuvius. Marcus looked where she pointed. He wrapped his arms around her, his lips close to her ear as he spoke. They look like umbrella pines. They stood for a moment, watching the mushroom-shaped cloud tethered to the mountain by a thin white column. They're beautiful, but not as beautiful as you. I noticed them a while ago. They haven't moved. She placed her hands over his. Are you sure it's safe? I think. All at once, the earth began to quake, tossing the couple to the ground. People around them screamed. When the earth settled and they were able to stand, Marcus grabbed Rufina's hand and began running toward the inn. What's happening? Rufina asked, her voice strained with panic. I don't know, Marcus replied, his voice cracking with fear. "'Vesuvius, it's erupting!' someone yelled. The couple kept their eye-trained on the now-foreboding cloud as they ran. "'The winds are with us!' Marcus exclaimed, watching the cloud slowly start to expand toward the southeast. However, ash began to fall like snow as they made it back to the inn. Once in their room, Marcus gathered the few valuables he had brought with them. "'Keep those bracelets with you. We might need to bribe the harbor masters. Rufina nodded, anxious to follow orders. She was terrified, and not just of Vesuvius. At any moment, Marcus could leave her behind, change his mind, and abandon her to save himself. After all, she was still just a slave. But as he grabbed her hand and moved toward the door, he spoke. Remember, you're my wife, not a slave. Vesuvius spewed his fury on the unfortunate in Pompeii first. The wind carried his ash and pumice, crushing buildings and burying the city. What started as a grey ashfall was a blizzard mere hours later. Fist-sized rocks pulled from deep within his walls were hurled into the stratosphere, pummeling the city. And yet Vesuvius was not quenched. The massive sacrifice of not only insignificant humans but all forms of life that called his foothills home was not enough. There were settlements upwind that were spared the worst of the eruption. But this was not his only weapon. As hours passed, the couple gathered information from their fellow men. As midnight approached, Vesuvius belched a stream of lava topped with a turbulent mix of poisonous gases. Flowing like a raging sea toward Herculaneum, it instantly incinerated everything in its path. The debris swirling in the air above was blocking out what little light the moon and stars provided. The men were called to the shore to get the boats to the water. Rufina huddled in a boat shed with the other women and children. Some were quiet, staring into the distance as if contemplating their fate. Others wailed in unrelenting terror. No one slept, not wanting to miss their turn to escape. Rufina did not scream. She was one of the quiet ones, growing in confidence that Marcus would not leave without her. She spent most of her time at the window, Watching Marcus tirelessly helping people flee, the ashfall began to increase, but he still stayed to help a woman or child into a boat, and since they did not have a child, they were to be the last to leave. He would occasionally look back, and the next time their eyes met, she smiled. Then, it was only a moment of feeling a mercifully brief yet intense heat as her skin burned. Marcus could not help but look for the face of his beloved as he helped people into the boats for their journey to safety. He knew she would be nervous he would leave her. He returned her next smile in a way he hoped was reassuring, but the air became hot instantly and he witnessed Rufina burn right before his eyes. He had only a moment to scream before the extreme heat reached him, burning through flesh and bone. An Angry God. Randall Williams, THD, paused to savor the moment before he entered the grand ballroom of the Willard Intercontinental. Not even the burning sensation in Randall's hands, feet, and legs from multiple sclerosis could dampen this moment. The Willard Intercontinental had long been considered a national historic site renowned as the Residence of Presidents, since every president since Franklin Pierce at least visited the site if not slept under its roof. Indeed, Abraham Lincoln lived there for 10 days prior to his inauguration on March 4, 1861. Cyrus Timothy Williams, Dr. Williams' son, would have his own moment tomorrow at noon. While disappointed his son did not answer God's special call to the ministry, becoming President of the United States of America was a decent second. Tomorrow was his son's time to shine, but tonight was his. He was to host a great revival that would begin to heal the nation after almost 40 years of division and misguided political leadership. Ladies and gentlemen, I am proud to introduce tonight's very special speaker. Hearing his cue from Cyrus's press secretary, Maria Magdala, Randall moved into the doorway. Dr. Randall Williams, she said, enthusiastically clapping into the mic before moving to the corner of the dais to manage the live stream. Thank you, Maria, he said, taking his place at the podium. Well, folks, we've gone and done it. The room erupted in applause. Forty years of failed policies by two parties that transformed into death cults to gain and maintain power. Their grip has been loosened. This got him a standing ovation. No one believed a third party had a chance, could unite left and right. Those people just lacked faith, and who could blame them after a lifetime of trusting politicians, hip corporate barons, and a media covering it all up? The wealthy nobodies in the room remained standing. And why is that? It's because they turned their backs on God, and God is a benevolent and loving God, but he can also be a jealous God. For far too long, we as a country have turned our back on him. On the left, this was the scourge of atheism and agnosticism, putting faith in human institutions with human flaws. On the right, this was the turning of our places of worship into palaces of money-changing. They called them megachurches, where evangelicals attached their fortunes to political demagogues, each Otis since Reagan has been, in their own way, an antichrist. Tomorrow, when Cyrus places his hand on our family's Scofield Bible and the Chief Justice administers the oath of office, all that will change. The grand ballroom once more erupted in ecstatic, rapturous applause. Who will save our souls? A woman screamed as the clapping subsided turn away from the modern and postmodern randall answered our critics on both sides said we are anti-progress science and technology not true there is a place in a life well lived for all the good things those pursuits provide however what they cannot provide us is the moral reckoning to guide us through the pitfalls of the new only god and his son jesus christ of nazareth can provide us with that north star. When we turn away from the divine light, we get lost in the darkness and wander in the wilderness just as the Israelites did for 40 years." Amen, shouted several members of the crowd. This is not merely damnation of the disbeliever. God wants mankind to come to him through our free will. What he doesn't want is a man thinking he can usurp God's reserved right of judgment. Heretics like a certain Baptist church and Isis take it upon themselves to punish the wicked. However, this is not our place as humans. Only God can punish the wicked, and he will do that at a time of his choosing, anytime, anywhere. And why is this God's and only God's purview? because the wrath of an angry God is to cast the wicked into hell where Satan stands ready to fall upon them and make them his own. At this moment, the wicked dead suffer under divine justice's condemnation to hell. The wicked living should not think, even for a moment, that they are safe because they are not physically in hell. No, at this moment, God is providing them in their misery a taste of what torment they will feel in hell." Randall ignored the squeezing hug in his chest. And this is why Cyrus's election is historic. Not just for the US of A, but for the very Kingdom of Heaven. Bringing the nation together for a brighter future for all of us are the words that have spearheaded this campaign. For the past 40 years, we have looked to the government to guide us to be our north star to lead us to that brighter future for the religious we have looked to our capitals to give us laws forcing us to obey morality from without rather than each of us allowing christ within to constrain the hellish principles which at any moment threaten to kindle and flame into hellfire maria cough <laughs> Glenn from Missouri has donated $1,500 to our super chat and asks, what can we do to save ourselves? Randall smiled. Repentance is the first step, but unless someone embraces Christ, they cannot be saved. The sermon ended with thunderous applause and a generous sum of donations for the re-election campaign in four years. I'll leave you and the president-elect alone, Dr. Williams," Maria said as the elevator to the sixth floor opened. Thank you, Maria, he hugged her. No reason to be so formal if you're going to become the first lady in six months. She smiled. I know, but since we haven't gone public with our romance yet, I don't want to get too familiar. You know how DC is built on leaks and rumors. Prudence is a virtue. Randall smiled at his soon-to-be daughter-in-law, who blushed and remained in the elevator as he made his exit. The doors quietly closed behind him, and he started toward the Thomas Jefferson suite. Two Secret Service agents stood guard on either side of the suite's door. Good evening, Dr. Williams, one agent spoke, while her partner remained silent and impassive. The President-elect is waiting for you. Thank you, Abby," he said as she opened the door for him. He had gotten to know most of his son's detail during the campaign. She had always shown herself to be capable and competent, but he still wished it were all men that were protecting Cyrus. He entered the foyer. The burning returned, stronger than during his sermon. The pain prevented him from appreciating the elegance of the black and white marble floors. Exiting the foyer and looking to his left, he could see a warm glow coming from the oval dining room at the far end of the suite. Cyrus? he asked, and not getting an answer began moving toward the glow. Passing through, he noticed the large table from the dining room had been moved. The accompanying chairs were haphazardly placed in the living room and the hallway. He paused for a moment, another MS hug coming on. It became harder to breathe. Is that you, father? Cyrus's voice carried from the warm glow come. The burning and tightness left his body. Cyrus, what's going on? Randall's voice left him once he entered the dining room. The warm glow came from five candles at each point of a pentagram drawn in red. Mrs. Williams' lifeless body lay in a corner, her body drained of blood. The couple's son kneeled naked in the middle of the circle. Cyrus lifted his head and looked at his father. You're... Not my dad. Not my real one, anyway. Cyrus, your mother, Randall stammered. Cyrus slowly turned and took in his mother's lifeless body. She at least really was my mother. He turned his face to Randall once more, his eyes glowing red. What? What are you talking about? 2006, the cathedral. You were there, but not out of devotion or faith. Cyrus chuckled. (laughs) What's hilarious is you're not even Catholic. No. Randall began shaking his head, the seeds of realization starting to sprout. You, You were meant to be a light unto the world. You paid off someone, got close to the 14th century forgery, clipped a piece of thread, Just like my father knew you would way back in 1348. Cyrus smiled with cruelty. My real father. Your real father is God. Cyrus barely moved as he laughed. A dark, booming laugh. (laughs) Please, doctor. A little sympathy for my true dad. It's funny that you call yourself that, you know? What? Your father? The twisting logic of Cyrus's words left Randall befuddled. He was quietly grasping the truth, but it was frustratingly pinned beneath the surface like a word languishing on the tip of the tongue. Cyrus shook his head. No, doctor... You've never delivered a baby, nor did you possess the skill to extract the DNA from the thread you took. It was Jesus' DNA. Yes, you thought you were getting the Son of God's DNA. You were going to bring about the second coming. You would be the modern Joseph and mother of the new Mary. Instead, you got me. No, no, that's impossible. Wailing in disbelief, Randall stumbled backward. "'That's not true! You can't be the... the... Antichrist!' Randall whispered the last word as if to soften the blow. His thoughts swirled in a torrent of emotion. This time, Cyrus's laughter caused his entire form to shudder. "'Oh no, father!' Search your soul. I'm not the Antichrist. Cyrus's lips curled into a sinister grin. You are. The fire in Randall's hands and feet intensified. No, no. You are the one who so lacked faith in your personal truth. You decided to bring on the second coming by stealing God's DNA. Do you know how foolish of an idea that was? He's God. But Jesus is God-made human. Cyrus shook his head. What you stole was cosmic strands of angelic matter, just like he stole the soul of many a man such as you. You know his name, don't you? His face went from calm to distorted in range in an instant. What's his name? Lucifer. Randall held his head in his hands as his whole body slumped, overcome with shame and defeat. That's right. But what... what does that make you? Before Cyrus could speak, the muscles between Randall's ribs began to spasm and he received a vision. The man he raised was speaking before Congress. Cyrus had two horns like a lamb. His voice roared like a dragon. Yet the representatives and bureaucrats clapped like trained seals at his every pause, blinded. They could not see the truth. Would they care if they could? Randall shrunk, realizing the answer. Randall began to feel like he had fallen into a patch of stinging nettles. He dropped to his knees. The image dissolved into a scantily clad Maria riding a scarlet-colored beast with ten horns and ten crowns. Writhing beneath the leader of the world, the future First Lady would hold dominion over the nations of the Earth, and the masses would love her for her promiscuity. The pain in his chest became more intense. He started gasping for air. Once more, the vision shifted. Cyrus was standing in the Oval Office, surrounded by generals and toadies. The decision had been made, and he rained nuclear fire from the heavens. He laughed as the world burned. Randall clutched at his throat. It became almost impossible to breathe. His raspy breath came in gasps as he looked once more at his son. I am the beast. The conversation. I was in a cabin. The instruments of writing and storycraft strewn about me. It was a perfect Saturday afternoon. When I looked at the horizon, I saw what could only be described as an instrument of death. A warhead. It sped toward its terminus like the evil demon it was. No more. Please, God. Help my poor soul. The words bubbled from deeper than my subconscious. They were a plea from deep within my heart. I'm standing in a valley now. It's green and lush. A blue stream babbles lazily and I walk the trail beside it. The sun shines warmly down on my skin. I close my eyes, feeling it nourish me. I come to a wooded area and the smell of balsamic pine welcomes me home. The scent of several lifetimes of celebration and cheer. I neither sweat nor tire as I make my way along. I am not afraid of unseen wildlife. I am certain this is a paradise. But as I see a clearing ahead, I grow sad, knowing the nostalgic scent of childhood will soon give way to something more. Yet, I am still not afraid of this transition. It's only natural. Blissful childhood innocence, sacrifice to the disillusionment of adulthood. I emerge from the woods into a field of grain. In the distance, there is a cottage. It sits at the base of the mountain on the eastward side of the valley. The mountaintop ends not in a peak, but in a jagged caldera. It sends a shiver down my spine as I remember another death. These thoughts are cast aside when I see a beautiful woman. As I draw nearer, I recognize her. When she sees me, she smiles and screams with joy. She flies into my arms. I grab and hold her close. Placing my lips on hers seems natural. We hold each other and kiss for an eon. She breaks the kiss and looks into my eyes. Hers are impossibly blue-gray. Marcus, my love, it has been too many lifetimes since we last kissed. When my name slips off her tongue, my eyes are drawn to the mountain's caldera and horrific memories flood back. I feel a soft hand on my cheek guiding me back to the safe harbor of her eyes. I want to speak, but my words won't come. It's okay, she says. Vesuvius has been silenced and will never separate us again, and my name will come to you. Stunned, I just stare, taking in her beauty. Rufina, the name bursts from my lips. She smiles. Yes, The melody of her voice shocks me until the memories of lifetimes come flooding back. I've been searching for you for all my lives. Another smile. As have I. The cycle has brought us together. She takes my hands and leads me to a table where a feast is prepared. The cycle? I understand her words, but not their meaning. She chuckles softly the cycle of life, death, and rebirth. In each life, God has a new lesson for us to learn. Eventually, we reach a point where we've learned all we can and it's time to embrace our higher spiritual self. I look around at this idyllic, earthly heaven in which I had once dreamed of spending a lifetime with her. Is this temporary? Will we be reborn and lose each other again? She shakes her head. No, I've reached the end. I've been waiting here since the end of my last trial. It was apocalyptic. She pauses. What was the apocalypse that brought you home? I close my eyes and sift through my most recent memories. It was a nuclear apocalypse. We elected a madman. No, we elected a demon. It was a biblical apocalypse. Hellfire came from the splitting of the atom. I look around. Are we in heaven? Rufina smiles. You can call it that. It doesn't matter. What matters is we are now. Where were you when President Williams brought about nuclear annihilation? She laughs and my heart aches for every lifetime I missed hearing it. Oh, Marcus... I was not on that plane of reality with you. Realizing we would never be reunited on the physical plane of existence, I ended my futile earthly search after the dead rose. Instead, I thought it better to wait for you here, in the afterlife. I looked at her shocked. You live through a zombie apocalypse? That's a thing? She shudders. Yes, my love. The closest I came to something as strange as that was when these invisible creatures began appearing randomly and devouring people. But the zombies, they were the last apocalypse for you? How does that work? I don't remember choosing not to be reborn. Watching lover after lover devoured alive, one of them the father of my child, was too much loss. After that death, I asked God to ascend me. I woke up here in our own personal Eden, the fulfillment of the promise you made, the promise of a simple kind of life at the base of the mountain. i take a deep breath and just process as memories flood back. I was getting the boats ready with the rest of the men. You gave me a ruby ring and dressed me in your wife's clothes so I'd blend in with your noble beard. I died gasping brimstone as the heat baked me alive. Rufina nods. Me too. From that life on, I was drawn to ruby rings even when I was a peasant and a prisoner. My mother in one existence insisted I attend to Elizabeth Batori to improve my marriage prospects. All it got me was spending purgatory in a pub run by the devil. From there, I ran with wolves during the Great War. Her stare became distant. What's so great about war anyway? Absolutely nothing. I grimace at memories of combat in Vietnam. I spent some time in a feudal war. I pause as the memory of the faces of those whose lives were lost while under my command or killed at my command come flooding into my memory. Did you ever do anything you regretted? She takes a sip of wine and seems to consider the question for a moment. Not in that life. However, there was one life where I killed my husband. My own sip of wine is unceremoniously spat out of my mouth. What? Rufina nods and gently sets her wine glass down. Technically, the state did it after I set him up for my murder. She shivers. It had not been a happy marriage, and he insisted we keep trying to fix it. I couldn't find the courage to just leave and file for divorce. I was so consumed with rage at our misfit union. I took the coward's way out and poisoned myself. Philip was put to death for my murder. She does not look at me, but over my shoulder, a 1,000-yard stare beyond the horizon. God was not happy with me, she continues, And in God, all things are possible, including two versions of a single soul existing at the same time. I spent another eon in old Ordog's pub. It turns out, purgatory and hell have some degree of overlap. My punishment was to work as the pub's wench and whore. A twisted crone doomed to serve her younger self until my penance was served and it was time to try life one more time. I'm sorry. I reached for her hand. Live enough lives and you're going to seriously fuck up from time to time. I remember at one point I gave up on love and lived a hermit's life. Then something close to love found me. But she wasn't human. She was some sort of goblin. When I realized she was changing me, I grew angry and pushed her away. I don't think she meant to kill me. Rufina doesn't speak. We just hold hands, coming to terms with things we wished we had done differently. Slowly, I feel myself start to disappear. I can feel Rufina's emotions, and I begin to sense that she is experiencing mine. Our consciousnesses entwine as we share the memories of our separate lifetimes, and the frustration of being denied a beautiful life in the shadow of Mount Vesuvius dissipates. Suddenly, I no longer exist without her and she without me, both of us giving up what it means to be I, to become a greater we. The entire expanse of the universe, from the quantum realm to the civilizations that exist in a supercluster of galaxies 10 billion light years across, stretches out before us. I know that this time we will explore it together, neither of our hearts broken any longer. I hope you enjoyed tonight's Tales, Past His Prologue, An Angry God, and The Conversation by Xavier Poe Cain. Still not a best-selling author, Xavier Poe Cain is a former door gunner on the International Space Station. When not making the galaxy safe for democracy, he writes whatever weirdness comes to mind. He currently lives in the woods with his wife Morticia in a state of mutual weirdness with their dogs, Chuck Norris and the three-legged Jabba the Hutt. Thanks to the GI Bill, he has an MFA in popular fiction writing and publishing from Emerson College. His latest book, Broken Hearts and Other Horrors is available now. His next book and first novel, A Mother's Torment will be released September 1st. Both of these works will be narrated by yours truly. You can hook up with Xavier and check out what consumes him at his website, www.xavierkane.com. That's X-A-V-I-E-R-K-A-N-E.com. Or Twitter at Xavier Kane 9 and on Facebook, Xavier Kane. You can also find me personally on Facebook and Twitter. And with that, listeners, our weekly journey into the psyche has just about come to a close. But before we go, I'd like to take a moment to thank you for joining us for tonight's episode and remind you to take a moment to stop by our iTunes page and leave chilling tales for Dark Nights, a five-star review, and a kind word. And follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, if you haven't already. And while you're at it, please remember to stop by our Apple podcast page or wherever else you listen to your favorite podcasts and subscribe. The charts are based on subscriptions, not listens. So if you haven't subscribed yet, I'd really appreciate it. I'm your host for Fear from the Heartland, Paul J. McSorley. I've enjoyed the titillation tonight. Ooh, there's that word again. Thank you for joining me. Hope to see you again next week at Fear from the Heartland.